Preface of Sylvie and Bruno Concluded This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Catherine Eastman Sylvie and Bruno Concluded by Lewis Carroll Preface Dreams that elude the maker's frenzied grasp Hands stark and still on a dead mother's breast, Which never more shall render clasp for clasp, Or deftly soothe a weeping child to rest. In such-like forms me listeth to portray My tale here ended. Thou delicious fay, The guardian of a sprite that lives to tease thee, Loving in earnest, chiding but in play, The merry mocking Bruno. Who that sees thee can fail to love thee, darling, even as I? My sweetest Sylvie, we must say good-bye. I must begin with the same announcement as in the previous volume, which I shall henceforward refer to as Volume 1, calling the present volume Volume 2, viz. that the locket, at page 405, was drawn by Miss Alice Havers, and my reason for not stating this on the title-page, that it seems only due to the artist of these wonderful pictures that his name should stand there alone, has, I think, even greater weight in Volume Two than it had in Volume One. Let me call especial attention to the three Little Birds borders at pages 365, 371, 377. The way in which he has managed to introduce the most minute details of the stanzas to be illustrated seems to me a triumph of artistic ingenuity. Let me here express my sincere gratitude to the many reviewers who have noticed, whether favorably or unfavorably, the previous volume. Their unfavorable remarks were most probably well-deserved, the favorable ones less probably so. Both kinds have no doubt served to make the book known, and have helped the reading public to form their opinions of it. Let me also here assure them that it is not from any want of respect for their criticisms that I have carefully forborne from reading any of them. I am strongly of opinion that an author had far better not read any reviews of his books. The unfavorable ones are almost certain to make him cross, and the favorable ones conceded and neither of these results is desirable. Criticisms have, however, reached me from private sources, to some of which I propose to offer a reply. One such critic complains that Arthur's strictures on sermons and on choristers are too severe. Let me say in reply that I do not hold myself responsible for any of the opinions expressed by the characters in my book. They are simply opinions which, it seemed to me, might probably be held by the persons into whose mouths I put them, and which were worth consideration. Other critics have objected to certain innovations in spelling, such as can't, won't, traveler. In reply, I can only plead my firm conviction that the popular usage is wrong. As to can't, it will not be disputed that, in all other words ending in n apostrophe t, these letters are an abbreviation of not, and it is surely absurd to suppose that, in this solitary instance, not is represented by apostrophe t. In fact, 
can't is the proper abbreviation for can it, just as ist is for is it. Again, in won't, the first apostrophe is needed because the word would is here abridged into wo. But I hold it proper to spell don't with only one apostrophe because the word do is here complete. As to such words as traveler, I hold the correct principle to be to double the consonant when the accent falls on that syllable, otherwise to leave it single. This rule is observed in most cases, e.g. we double the R in preferred, but leave it single in offered, so that I am only extending to other cases an existing rule. I admit, however, that I do not spell parallel as the rule would have it, but here we are constrained by the etymology to insert the double L. In the preface to Volume 1 were two puzzles on which my readers might exercise their ingenuity. One was to detect the three lines of padding, which I had found it necessary to supply in the passage extending from the top of page 35 to the middle of page 38. They are the 14th, 15th, and 16th lines of page 37. The other puzzle was to determine which, if any, of the eight stanzas of the gardener's song, see pages 65, 78, 83, 90, 106, 116, 164, 168, were adapted to the context, and which, if any, had the context adapted to them. The last of them is the only one that was adapted to the context, the garden door that opened with a key, having been substituted for some creature, a cormorant, I think, that nestled in a tree. At pages 78, 106, and 164, the context was adapted to the stanza. At page 90, neither stanza nor context was altered. The connection between them was simply a piece of good luck. In the preface to Volume 1, at pages 9 and 10, I gave an account of the making up of the story of Sylvie and Bruno. A few more details may perhaps be acceptable to my readers. It was in 1873, as I now believe, that the idea first occurred to me that a little fairy tale, written in 1867 for Aunt Judy's magazine, under the title Bruno's Revenge, might serve as the nucleus of a longer story. This, I surmise, from having found the original draft of the last paragraph of Volume 2, dated 1873. So that this paragraph has been waiting twenty years for its chance of emerging into print, more than twice the period so cautiously recommended by Horace for repressing one's literary efforts. It was in February 1885 that I entered into negotiations with Mr. Harry Furness for illustrating the book. Most of the substance of both volumes was then in existence in manuscript, and my original intention was to publish the whole story at once. In September 1885, I received from Mr. Furness the first set of drawings, the four which illustrate Peter and Paul. See Volume 1, pages 144, 147, 150, 154. In November 1886, I received the second set, the three which illustrate the professor's song about the little man who had a little gun, volume 2, pages 265, 266, 267. And in January 1887, I received the third set, 
the four which illustrate the pigtail. So we went on, illustrating first one bit of the story and then another, without any idea of sequence. And it was not till March 1889 that, having calculated the number of pages the story would occupy, I decided on dividing it into two portions and publishing it half at a time. This necessitated the writing of a sort of conclusion for the first volume, and most of my readers, I fancy, regarded this as the actual conclusion, when that volume appeared in December 1889. At any rate, among all the letters I received about it, there was only one which expressed any suspicion that it was not a final conclusion. This letter was from a child. She wrote, We were so glad, when we came to the end of the book, to find that there was no ending up, for that shows us that you are going to write a sequel. It may interest some of my readers to know the theory on which this story is constructed. It is an attempt to show what might possibly happen, supposing that fairies really existed, and that they were sometimes visible to us and we to them, and that they were sometimes able to assume human form, and supposing also that human beings might sometimes become conscious of what goes on in the fairy world by actual transference of their immaterial essence, such as we meet with in esoteric Buddhism. I have supposed a human being to be capable of various psychical states, with varying degrees of consciousness, as follows. A. The ordinary state, with no consciousness of the presence of fairies. B. The eerie state, in which, while conscious of actual surroundings, he is also conscious of the presence of fairies. C. A form of trance, in which, while unconscious of actual surroundings, and apparently asleep, he, i.e., his immaterial essence, migrates to other scenes, in the actual world or in fairyland, and is conscious of the presence of fairies. I have also supposed a fairy to be capable of migrating from fairyland into the actual world, and of assuming at pleasure a human form, and also to be capable of various psychical states, viz. a. the ordinary state, with no consciousness of the presence of human beings, b. a sort of eerie state, in which he is conscious, if in the actual world, of the presence of actual human beings, if in fairyland, of the presence of the immaterial essences of human beings. I will here tabulate the passages in both volumes where abnormal states occur. Please see e-text. In the preface to volume 1 at page 10, I gave an account of the origination of some of the ideas embodied in the book. A few more such details may perhaps interest my readers. Volume 1, page 203. The very peculiar use here made of a dead mouse comes from real life. I once found two very small boys in a garden playing a microscopic game of single wicket. The bat was, I think, about the size of a tablespoon, and the utmost distance attained by the ball in its most daring flights was some four or five yards. The exact length was, of course, a matter of supreme importance, and it was always carefully measured out, the batsman and the bowler amicably sharing the toil, with a dead mouse. Volume 1, page 259. 
the two quasi-mathematical axioms quoted by arthur at page two fifty nine of volume one things that are greater than the same are greater than one another and all angles are equal were actually enunciated in all seriousness by undergraduates at a university situated not one hundred miles from eli volume two page ten bruno's remark i can if i like etc was actually made by a little boy volume two page twelve so also was his remark i know what it doesn't spell and his remark i just twiddled my eyes etc i heard from the lips of a little girl who had just solved a puzzle i had set her volume two page fifty five bruno's soliloquy for its father etc was actually spoken by a little girl looking out of the window of a railway carriage volume two page one thirty eight the remark made by a guest at the dinner party when asking for a dish of fruit i've been wishing for them etc i heard made by the great poet laureate whose loss the whole reading world has so lately had to deplore volume two page one sixty three bruno's speech on the subject of the age of mine hair embodies the reply of a little girl to the question is your grandmother an old lady i don't know if she's an old lady said this cautious young person she's eighty-three volume two page two o three the speech about obstruction is no mere creature of my imagination it is copied verbatim from the columns of the standard and was spoken by sir william harcourt who was at the time a member of the opposition at the national liberal club on july the sixteenth eighteen ninety volume two page three twenty nine the professor's remark about a dog's tail that it doesn't bite at that end was actually made by a child when warned of the danger he was incurring by pulling the dog's tail volume two page three seventy four the dialogue between sylvie and bruno which occupies lines six to fifteen is a verbatim report merely substituting cake for penny of a dialogue overheard between two children one story in this volume bruno's picnic i can vouch for as suitable for telling to children having tested it again and again and whether my audience has been a dozen little girls in a village school or some thirty or forty in a london drawing-room or a hundred in a high school i have always found them earnestly attentive and keenly appreciative of such fun as the story supplied may i take this opportunity of calling attention to what i flatter myself was a successful piece of name-corning at page forty two of volume one does not the name sibimet fairly embody the character of the sub-warden the gentle reader has no doubt observed what a singularly useless article in a house a brazen trumpet is if you simply leave it lying about and never blow it readers of the first volume who have amused themselves by trying to solve the two puzzles propounded at pages eleven and twelve of the preface may perhaps like to exercise their ingenuity in discovering which if any of the following parallelisms were intentional and which if any accidental the table is defined as stanzas of little birds and events and persons stanza one banquet stanza two chancellor stanza three 
Empress and Spinach, Volume 2, page 325. Stanza 4, Warden's Return. Stanza 5, Professor's Lecture, Volume 2, page 339. Stanza 6, Other Professor's Song, Volume 1, page 138. Stanza 7, Petting of Uggug. Stanza 8, Baron Doppelgeist. Stanza 9, Jester and Bear, Volume 1, page 119, Little Foxes. Stanza 10, Bruno's Dinner Bell, Little Foxes. I will publish the answer to this puzzle in the preface to a little book of Original Games and Puzzles, now in course of preparation. I have reserved for the last one or two rather more serious topics. I had intended in this preface to discuss more fully than I had done in the previous volume the morality of sport, with special reference to letters I have received from lovers of sport, in which they point out the many great advantages which men get from it, and try to prove that the suffering, which it inflicts on animals, is too trivial to be regarded. But when I came to think the subject out, and to arrange the whole of the arguments pro and con, I found it much too large for treatment here. Some day I hope to publish an essay on this subject. At present I will content myself with stating the net result I have arrived at. It is that God has given to man an absolute right to take the lives of other animals for any reasonable cause such as the supply of food, but that he has not given to man the right to inflict pain unless when necessary, that mere pleasure or advantage does not constitute such a necessity, and consequently that pain inflicted for the purposes of sport is cruel and therefore wrong but I find it a far more complex question than I had supposed, and that the case on the side of the sportsman is a much stronger one than I had supposed. So for the present I say no more about it. Objections have been raised to the severe language I have put into the mouth of Arthur, at page 277, on the subject of sermons, and at pages 273 and 274, on the subjects of choral services and choristers. I have already protested against the assumption that I am ready to endorse the opinions of characters in my story. But in these two instances I admit that I am much in sympathy with Arthur. In my opinion, far too many sermons are expected from our preachers, and as a consequence a great many are preached which are not worth listening to, and as a consequence of that we are very apt not to listen. The reader of this paragraph probably heard a sermon last Sunday morning. Well, let him, if he can, name the text and state how the preacher treated it. Then as to choristers, and all the other accessories, of music, vestments, processions, etc., which have come along with them into fashion, while freely admitting that the ritual movement was sorely needed, and that it has effected a vast improvement in our church services which had become dead and dry to the last degree, I hold that, like many other desirable movements, it has gone too far in the opposite direction, and has introduced many new dangers. For the congregation, this new movement involves the danger of learning to think that the services are done for them, and that their bodily presence is all they need contribute. 
and for clergy and congregation alike it involves the danger of regarding these elaborate services as ends in themselves and of forgetting that they are simply means and the very hollowest of mockeries unless they bear fruit in our lives for the choristers it seems to involve the danger of self-conceit as described at page two seventy four nota bene stagey entrances is a misprint for stage entrances the danger of regarding those parts of the service where their help is not required as not worth attending to the danger of coming to regard the service as a mere outward form a series of postures to be assumed and of words to be said or sung while the thoughts are elsewhere and the danger of familiarity breeding contempt for sacred things let me illustrate these last two forms of danger from my own experience not long ago i attended a cathedral service and was placed immediately behind a row of men members of the choir and i could not help noticing that they treated the lessons as a part of the service to which they needed not to give any attention and as affording them a convenient opportunity for arranging music books etc etc also i have frequently seen a row of little choristers after marching in procession to their places kneel down as if about to pray and rise from their knees after a minute spent in looking about them it being but too evident that the attitude was a mere mockery surely it is very dangerous for these children to thus accustom them to pretend to pray as an instance of irreverent treatment of holy things i will mention a custom which no doubt many of my readers have noticed in churches where the clergy and choir enter in procession viz that at the end of the private devotions which are carried on in the vestry and which are of course inaudible to the congregation the final amen is shouted loud enough to be heard all through the church this serves as a signal to the congregation to prepare to rise when the procession appears and it admits of no dispute that it is for this purpose that it is thus shouted when we remember to whom that amen is really addressed and consider that it is here used for the same purpose as one of the church bells we must surely admit that it is a piece of gross irreverence to me it is as much as if i were to see a bible used as a footstool as an instance of the dangers for the clergy themselves introduced by this new movement let me mention the fact that according to my experience clergymen of this school are specially apt to retail comic anecdotes in which the most sacred names and words sometimes actual texts from the bible are used as themes for jesting many such things are repeated as having been originally said by children whose utter ignorance of evil must no doubt acquit them in the sight of god of all blame but it must be otherwise for those who consciously use such innocent utterances as material for their unholy mirth let me add however most earnestly that i fully believe that this profanity is in many cases unconscious the environment as i have tried to explain at page one twenty three makes all the difference between man and man and i rejoice to think that many of these profane stories which i find so painful to listen to and should feel it a sin to repeat give to their ears no pain and to their consciences no shock 
and that they can utter, not less sincerely than myself, the two prayers, Hallowed be thy name, and, From hardness of heart and contempt of thy word and commandment, good Lord, deliver us. To which I would desire to add, for their sake and for my own, Keble's beautiful petition, Help us this and every day to live more nearly as we pray. It is, in fact, for its consequences, for the grave dangers both to speaker and to hearer which it involves, rather than for what it is in itself, that I mourn over this clerical habit of profanity in social talk. To the believing hearer it brings the danger of loss of reverence for holy things by the mere act of listening to and enjoying such jests, and also the temptation to retail them for the amusement of others. To the unbelieving hearer it brings a welcome confirmation of his theory that religion is a fable in the spectacle of its accredited champions thus betraying their trust. And to the speaker himself it must surely bring the danger of loss of faith, for surely such jests, if uttered with no consciousness of harm, must necessarily be also uttered with no consciousness at the moment of the reality of God as a living being who hears all we say. And he who allows himself the habit of thus uttering holy words with no thought of their meaning is but too likely to find that, for him, God has become a myth and heaven a poetic fancy, that for him the light of life is gone, and that he is at heart an atheist, lost in a darkness that may be felt. There is, I fear, at the present time, an increasing tendency to irreverent treatment of the name of God and of subjects connected with religion. Some of our theatres are helping this downward movement by the gross caricatures of clergymen which they put upon the stage. Some of our clergy are themselves helping it by showing that they can lay aside the spirit of reverence along with their surpluses, and can treat as jests, when outside their churches, names and things to which they pay an almost superstitious veneration when inside. The Salvation Army has, I fear, with the best intentions, done much to help it by the coarse familiarity with which they treat holy things, and surely every one, who desires to live in the spirit of the prayer, Hallowed be thy name, ought to do what he can, however little that may be, to check it. So I have gladly taken this unique opportunity, however unfit the topic may seem for the preface to a book of this kind, to express some thoughts which have weighed on my mind for a long time. I did not expect, when I wrote the preface to Volume One, that it would be read to any appreciable extent but I rejoice to believe, from evidence that has reached me, that it has been read by many, and to hope that this preface will also be so, and I think that among them some will be found ready to sympathize with the views I have put forwards, and ready to help, with their prayers and their example, the revival in society of the waning spirit of reverence. Christmas, 1893 End of Preface